he really had to decide you're going to continue drinking or stay with your family and keep that together. And he decided on his family. I didn't think I'd make it to see 40 years old, right? Like I was ready to kill myself with booze and here I am doing this. That was Jennifer and Matt Hoadley. And this is episode 90 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. This episode, we are excited to welcome another couple of the quarter, Jennifer and Matt Holdley. Jen and Matt met in college in Maine and now live just south of Boston, Massachusetts with their two children. While Jen ran track as a child and into college, Matt didn't discover his love for running until shortly after he got sober and became a recovering alcoholic in 2013. Kim met both Matt and Jen at Gorge Waterfalls in April of this year and in one short evening discovered they both have an incredible story to share. In this episode, we discuss Matt's realization he needed to make a big change after he hit bottom, his decision to get sober cold turkey, and how Matt started and Jen returned to running later in life. We talk about how running has become a big part of their lives as they now find themselves running 100 milers together, and how they keep their running passion in check and work together to stay in balance in a sport that doesn't lend itself well to moderation. We also discuss the paradox of how ultra running attracts many in recovery, and yet how the sport also ironically has a very strong beer culture. Jed and Matt have been through a lot together, and they have come out of life's challenges stronger than ever, both as a couple and as runners. We certainly hope you enjoy this episode. So Jen and Matt, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Carolyn and I are really happy to have you on the show tonight. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I wanted to just give a little bit of background before we get into asking you more about yourselves as to how in the heck I even came to know who Jen and Matt Holdley are. So um, post-pandemic, first real in-person race in two years, we all found ourselves at the Gorge Waterfalls, 100 slash 50K together in April. And um, you are friends with a mutual friend of, of mine, Trina who, by the way, has just been on the show. So if you want to check out her episode, you can go listen to that. But uh, we showed up at the the race hotel and Trina happened to be in your hotel room. And so I invited myself over because I just couldn't wait to connect with more runners. And uh, that evening, we had a bit of a power hour out for dinner and getting ready for the race weekend. And in that period of time, I got to know both you and Matt just a little bit and just heard just enough of your story that I immediately knew I was like, like, okay, I'm going to hit these guys up after this weekend to come on this podcast because um, I think they have a real story to share. So why don't we get to know um, each of you just a little bit more? Uh, let's start with Jen. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I am a 43-year-old runner, sort of newly back into it, I suppose, in the last few years. Um, a mom of two, and I'm married to Matt. And Matt, how about you? So I am 43 as well. Our birthdays are actually five days apart. And yeah, I'm a I'm a runner. I'm a sober guy. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Yeah, I work uh, as a manager, team manager in the insurance field, and I've been doing that um, pretty much ever since I left college 20 years ago. That's awesome. So. 
Jen, I'm curious with you, when did your running story begin? Have you always been a runner or was it something that you you found later in life? So running's always been part of my life. As a kid, I can remember running up and down the street. I, I grew up on a dead end street with lots of kids in every house. And we just, you know, had that kind of quintessential childhood where everybody got outside and played and, and we would run around all day, every day. Um, I used to do like a summer track series. I really just enjoyed it. And I did kind of like a little of every sport. And then as I uh, got into junior high school, uh, they had this sixth grade turkey race that the first prize when I won it, um, which was so exciting, uh, you got a turkey for the Thanksgiving table. So that was like a big deal at, at my house. Uh, and then from there, um, actually right at the finish line, the high school track coach was waiting and he pulled me aside <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm only in sixth grade here, but okay. Um, <laughs> and he became my, my track coach in high school and one of the best coaches hands down in my entire life. He just always knew exactly what you needed to hear. Uh, so throughout high school, I ran track. I was more of like a middle distance runner really enjoyed that, became like captain of the team and all of that. Then I went on to college and I ran cross country. I had the intention of continuing throughout college, um, but I ran one season of cross country as a freshman. And I just, I don't know if it was comparing this new coach to my old coach or what it was, but he was not the same at all. Um, I, it, it didn't feel like a good fit. I, um, kind of felt like he had a different approach in that he didn't lift up the the runners as much as the coach I had previously. Um, he, he said a lot of comments to the other girls on the team that were just like, I thought detrimental, um, especially knowing that there were some uh, people on the team that had like disordered eating and that type of thing. I didn't care for how he approached uh, some of the conversations. And that wasn't something that I struggled with. I just really did not like kind of standing by and watching that. And I also felt like he was very driven toward having me live the entire time in the gym. And I did not feel like that was the college experience that I wanted. So I kind of paused my running at that point. And then took a, a long break, actually. Uh, I met Matt the following year, and um, we just kind of like had a lot of fun in college, and that carried over for a while. Um, and that we'll get into that story with <laughs> with uh, where Matt leads. Um, but um, then after Matt started running, I got back into it. Uh, we had had our second daughter, and I felt like I just needed something for me, and um, mm -hmm. running was it. So you guys are college sweethearts. Yeah. Yes. A lot of our couples of the quarter that we've had on this show, eh, Carolyn, have, mm -hmm. have met in university or in college and uh, in different yeah, circumstances. But yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. So Matt, I honestly don't know which question to ask first with you. You know, I want to know about your running origin story, but I also know it's a bit interwoven with your recovery story. Skipping back and then forward again, did you run in, in high school and university the same as Jen, or was it something you found later as well? So I played team sports growing up and through high school, but I never, you know, I never ran unless I had to, right? I never ran unless it was practice. That was kind of the only thing. And um, okay. I guess I never ran a step for fun. 
probably until um, 2014, a year into my sobriety, um, almost exactly a year. I don't think I ever ran any step that wasn't mandated by a coach up until then. So um, probably from the age of 18, when I graduated high school, I never went for a run until I was about 35 years old. So, Wow. Okay. And now here you are running multiple 100s and ultra marathons. So there's a whole lot of space and story in between those two <laughs> events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So a large part of, as you heard in the intro, what we're going to talk about today is, you know, about Matt, your struggle with addiction and your journey to recovery. Um, it was not just your story, but Jen's as well. So why don't you just, let's just dive in there right now. So after university, life kind of took a turn in a direction you weren't planning. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think, I think we can say that, but I also think that, you know, I think when I started, you know, I never took a drink until I went to uh, college, right? I never drank in high school. And I was one of those kids that grew up on the Canadian border, right? So we could cross over at 18 and on the border of Quebec and get booze pretty easily. Even kids in high school were able to get it. They didn't really care back then. You know, I was the kid all throughout high school who never felt like they fit in, never felt good enough, um, severe anxiety, depression, and never felt comfortable in my own skin, right? So I go to college and... Um, I go to a party, you know, and I drink for the first time and instantly taking that drink, I felt like, oh, this is what I've been looking for this whole time. Some of that weight and that fear that I had been so wrapped up in started to come off. So I almost looked at booze as medicine at that time. You know, it was fun, but it was also, it was also a way for me to deal with all the internal stuff as well. And I always say this when I speak about my drinking and addiction is that I never drank like a normal person. You know, it was, it was all out all the time. I joined a fraternity in college, which meant, you know, we were drinking all the time and it was crazy. And I really thought that, you know, when I get older and I graduated college, that that would slow down, right? I would lead a normal life, leave all that stuff behind, but that wasn't the case. You know, I still severely struggled with all these the same things that I had been struggling for a long time with, you know, fear, doubt, insecurity, um, anxiety, depression, everything else. And um, the only way I knew how to kind of deal with that was by drinking. You know, I had seen therapists for years, but I would keep going to therapists and never tell them the truth of what was going on. You know, I would stop at the liquor store, go see the therapist, never talk about my drinking. I would say, yeah, I maybe have a beer or two a night and that's it. And then go home and black out by like seven o'clock in the evening. You know, and, and I was a professional, I, I, I had a job and, and this is what I was doing, but I didn't know how to deal with how I felt internally. You know, at this point, this is the only way I could deal with it. And, you know, you know, probably at 26 years old, I'm a, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And, you know, the last few years of my drinking were, you know, almost daily blackouts, you know, by seven, eight o'clock at night, probably five nights a week. You know, I drank every day. There's probably maybe five or six days throughout the year that I maybe didn't drink, you know, and that was it. And um, I just didn't want to live anymore. And I was too scared to kill myself. So I figured I could do it with booze, you know, and that's kind of where I was at at the end. So internally alone and just hated myself, hated this is who I was. You know, I figured that we only had one child at the time and I figured, you know what, I would be better dead. You know, my wife could meet somebody else. My daughter would have a better father and, um, you know, I would be out of their life. You know, that's how alone and um, isolated I was with booze. You know, I was living in the same house with, 
you know, Jen and our daughter Eleanor at the time, but it was like, I wasn't even here. It was like, I was a ghost in here. Basically. Um, I was just so alone. And so my sobriety date is March 25th, 2013. And, um, you know, I remember on March 24th, 2013, surprisingly, you know, we were drinking all day and, or I was drinking all day. And, um, you know, I remember looking at Jen and it was, uh, it was looking at somebody that I had destroyed, right? It was looking at somebody, it wasn't somebody that was just sad or upset. It was the look of somebody that I love, but I had also destroyed and um, by my actions. And that was the last day I took a drink. And I decided that, you know, I actually wanted to live. And, um, you know, I did the first five months, five to six months, just alone. I didn't know what to do other than to stop drinking. You know, I didn't know about a 12-step program. I didn't know about rehabs or detox, you know, for the first few days, I just kind of slept on the couch and sweated and hoped I would get over it. And uh, those first five or six months were pretty miserable because I didn't know there was a solution to live without booze. Yeah. And um, it was awful. You know, I was still just as angry and still upset because I didn't because my drinking was because of these internal problems and I wasn't fixing them. I just didn't have the booze to mask how I felt. And you know, I remember it was in August of uh, 2013 and, and I remember having the thought of, I'm either going to drink today and die or I've got to do something else. And I looked up a 12-step program. I participate in AA and, and I went to a meeting that evening. I remember walking into that room and, and sitting in the front row because I didn't want if I said something for, for anybody to like turn around and look at me. So if I was sitting in the front row they wouldn't be able to do that. And I remember the speaker that night and I, and I raised my hand and I said my name and I was an alcoholic and instantly it was like a thousand pounds came off my shoulder. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate that, you know, I still participate in that program today, you know, it saved my life and, you know, a year into sobriety, you know, Jen said, suggested I do something for myself as well, you know, start running. And, you know, I started by just going, you know, a half mile around the block those two things together have um, changed my life fundamentally. Wow, there's so so many directions that we can we can go with this. But I, Jen, I want to bring you into the conversation here now. So that was something I was thinking as Matt was telling the story. Is like, were you in the picture at this point? So clearly you were. So what was that time like for you? I mean, obviously you recognize that there was, or maybe I shouldn't assume that, like, did you recognize that there was a problem with, um, you know, his relationship with alcohol and how were things for you and your daughter at the time? Yeah. So I recognized there was an issue, but he was also, and I think this is a trait that a lot of people that are actively in addiction, they're good at covering it up or, or lying about it. Um, so I knew that he was drinking and drinking a lot, but I don't think I realized how much. Mm. So sometimes mm -hmm. I would find like a lot of empties after he had drank that night. And I'm like, geez, this seems like a lot more than he was saying. I would come home from work and have a beer. Probably, honestly, it was because he was kind of annoying. <laughs> um, and I was like, all right, so I'll have one beer and then that'll like maybe make him less annoying at that point. It, it was kind of this, this feeling of it was fun until it wasn't anymore. Mm. Um, so we, mm -hmm. we had a lot of fun, you know, 
we would go out to a bar, we'd go out to eat. Then when we had our first daughter, it was like, okay, now it's time to grow up. And I did and he didn't. You know, I'd put I'd put her to bed and he'd be like, oh, let's crank up the music. I'm like, I just put her to bed. What are you nuts? Um, so it was it was constantly that kind of on a loop. It got to the point where I started realizing, yeah, he's drinking more than he's he's owning up to. And this isn't going to get better. Um, so eventually I kind of gave him an ultimatum and I was just kind of like, all right, if we're going to make this work, you need to stop. Um, and I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that was when you decided that you needed to make a change, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think too, just to say, you know, I think a lot of people think, well, you know, you're going to have your first child, you know, now is what's going to make you want to stop. And I think what for me it was, is that now it was, oh my God, I'm going to have a child. I can't even manage myself, right? Like, how am I going to do this? And so instead of stopping, I was so filled with fear that I actually, my, my drinking went even faster. You know, I put my yes. foot on the accelerator even more because I had no idea yeah. what to do. I couldn't even take care of myself. The insecurities were still there. Yeah. yeah. And it, and it, and it was, um, you know, it was worse because now I didn't know what to do. The only thing I knew what to do was to keep drinking. So I didn't have to worry about it. Like how aware were you? Cause now you're talking in retrospect from, you know, 10 years ago or something. So you're connecting, you've probably connected a lot of dots, but in the moment when you, you hadn't had your first sip of alcohol until college and then you go to college and you're like, oh, I never felt like I fit in or belonged or I never felt good enough. And now all of a sudden, like, I don't feel that anymore with the alcohol. Like how aware were you that alcohol was like numbing some of the those uncomfortable feelings that you were feeling all along? Or was that kind of still subconscious at that point? I think I knew it sort of in the beginning because I knew that um, all the reasons that I drank, I could quiet those parts of my head. You know what I mean? Like the anxiety, the depression went away. Like I was cool. Like I had friends, like I joined a fraternity, like people liked me, you know, so sort of the opposite of where I was. You know, and college was college, right? I, I drank with people like me. So I was surrounded by people that, j- that drank normal. just like me. So it was normal, yeah. right? I think it yeah. was after. And I remember looking in the mirror one day and it was probably, I was probably almost 30 years old. And and I looked in the mirror and I'm like, I'm a drunk. This is this is what God made, right? God made some people doctors. He made some people runners. He, you know, he made, mm-hmm. you know, some people, you know, seven feet tall. This is what he made part of being an alcoholic is the admission of like, I'm an alcoholic and I have a problem. I looked in the mirror. It was just like, this is who I am. It wasn't a sign of, I need to do something. It was that this is just who I am. It's an identity. Like a very fixed mindset. Yeah. And it, and and I remember doing that and it's scary because I just accepted it. Right. There's a part of how did I get from college to here? But it was all because I didn't know how to deal with my internal emotions and anxieties and fears and all these other things. But then it was, then I was here, right? Here I am a daily drinker, you know, and I didn't want to stop because I didn't think I could deal with any of those problems. Mm -hmm. And how about like, were you able to communicate that with Jen? Like, I'm scared. I'm scared. I won't be a good father. Like I, you know, I can't stop drinking. Like this has a grip on me. Was there like free flowing conversation back and forth so that she knew where you stood or was it like, maybe I'll ask you that Jen, like how sort of 
in the know did you feel about like his internal like obviously he's living it right but you're just kind of observing from the outside and ha- maybe having to guess in in some places of what he might be feeling yes uh, definitely there's a lot of guesswork on my end and um kind of a lot of faith in that this program works if you work it and this is still to this day he's not cured miraculously he has to work this program every day of his life and that's going to be something that he has to always do a lot of those insecurities still sit with him but i think um he still has people in this program he has a sponsor he has other people that he has met in the running world um that are also in recovery that i think he can reach out to and sometimes it's better if he talks to them than he does to me. It just, uh, I think I can tell him the same thing that somebody else can tell him. And it just, if he hears it from somebody else, sometimes it, it hits home better with him. Um, so I've just kind of learned to say, okay, that's the reality of it. And if it works for him, then that's what matters. Yeah. Um, I will say that throughout all of this, as crazy as this may sound, we, A, we were really lucky that he never hit a bottom that was like jail time or killing somebody in a car accident or anything like that. It was really just, it got to be super annoying at home and he wasn't going to make any changes. So he really had to decide, you know, is it, you're going to continue drinking or stay with your family and keep that together. And he decided on his family and, and himself too. I think he decided, you know, this is not who I want to be in my life. So I think that was really important. And I think, you know, it's going to be something that is a struggle forever. I I don't think that it's an easy thing for somebody to have to um, go through, but I think he now has tools to be able to um, face things. And there are certain times where I can start seeing like, "Mm, some of those insecurities are starting to bubble up. Maybe you should call your sponsor or, uh, and, right. and sometimes he'll he'll notice it before I do, um, or his friends yeah. will, and they say, mm, "You're start. You need to do this." And I think that's super helpful. Well, I think you know your commitment to each other sure is is evident in in your story. And Matt, you're very lucky to have a a woman like Jen in your corner for sure. And, you know, I just, I keep thinking about how you said for like the first five months or so of your, your sobriety experience, you pretty much did it on your own through your sheer grit and determination and love for your family. I want to go a little bit now into, you mentioned that it was Jen that kind of put the bug in your ear to maybe try running. And I know running has become for you, you know, another identity in lieu of the drunk identity. And so I want to hear a little bit more about that. Like, how how did you start running? Did you do it all on your own? <laughs> well, how did your path move from running a half a mile around the block to ultra marathons? So I didn't, so Jen suggested it and our neighborhood is like sort of a half mile little circle. I had whatever sneakers I had. I don't even know if they were running shoes at the time and like whatever shorts I had, you know, and I'm like, all right, you know, I'm a year sober. Like I should do something healthy. A lot of people start running, working out. Like I know so many people in recovery that do all kinds of different activities and she had suggested it and um, I couldn't run a half mile, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, God, this is pathetic. You know, I'm, 
35 years old and I can't run a half mile. But I did it and I felt good, right? And I went back the next day and did it again. And for the first couple of weeks, it was literally only running a half mile until I could do it. But it felt good. Running brought me a clear head, right? It brought me peace. It brought me sort of um, this feeling that I had never had before. And I just kept doing it. You know, I thought, you know, and I signed up pretty quickly for a 5K. So I started running in March. And I think I signed up for a 5K that May. And um, I remember finishing that 5K. And it was like, I always say this. It was like, you know, when you're in Little League and you hit a home run when you're like 10 years old. Like, it was the greatest feeling. Because here I am, you know, I... I didn't think I'd see 40 years old. Right. And I just ran this 5k. So this is fantastic. And as somebody with addiction and alcoholism, like we're not very good at moderation. Right. So the next thing was I signed up for a 10k. And then I remember signing up for a half marathon that, that September. And to me, signing up for a 13 mile race was like signing up to run a thousand miles. Like I didn't even know if it was humanly possible. Right. And, and I did it. I remember finishing that and we finished right at the end of Plymouth Rock in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And that was very overwhelming to me because I couldn't, a lot of when I finish these big things, these milestone races and stuff, I, the first thought is I can't believe this is what my life is now. I didn't think I'd make it to see 40 years old, right? Like I was ready to kill myself with booze and here I am doing this. And right after that half marathon, I looked up marathons and the Vermont city marathon came up and, and I signed up for it as soon as I could. And so that was in, um, 2015, I ran that race and the whole time I'm running that race. I'm, I, I keep telling myself, I can't believe this is what I'm doing. A year ago, I couldn't run a half mile and here I am running a marathon. I just could not believe this is what I, you know, it, trust me, it wasn't fast. It was like five hours and 17 minutes, I think. But the whole last two miles, like along the lakefront in Burlington, Vermont, I'm just crying because I can't believe how fundamentally different my life is. And there's my family. There's my wife and my daughter and my parents were there at the end of my sister. You know, it was amazing to me to be able to do that and to be able to do that sober. And within, I don't know, a few hours, I thought, well, if I can do this then I can probably do something longer. Cause you know, when I started running, I jumped on YouTube, right? So I'm watching all the videos and I, and I started to see the ultra running people like Sage Canada and, and the ginger runner and all these people. And I start watching their videos. And um, I think it was like a day or two later, I signed up for my first 50 K for that fall. So, you know, I did the typical alcoholic thing was, you know, hit the accelerator when it comes to this stuff and um, you know, went very quickly into the ultra world. Oh, yes. So yeah, you, you mentioned that people who are in recovery often have a hard time with moderation. Well, runners tend to have that as well. And, you know, in the ultra running community definitely attracts people with addictive personalities and people who are always looking for more of the next thing. So as an ultra runner myself, I've struggled with that is how do I keep this passion in check? How do I keep this desire for more in check? So I'm really curious and I want to ask both of you, I want to ask Matt how you have managed to keep it healthy, you know, keep your relationship with running healthy. And then also, and maybe to Jen, has he always kept it healthy? <laughs> Are there times where you felt like running has, has almost tipped over into something that maybe also needed to be kept in check? So let's go to you first, Matt. Have I always kept it healthy? I think, I think there's times where I do, and then there's times where I change that to be my identity. And 
I've been very fortunate since I started running ultra races and trail races that I have a very good community of sober ultra runners around me that I know from all over the country, some in other parts of the world. You know, and I think especially as we start to get up to 50 milers and 100 mile races, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time training to run 100 miles. Then you run 100 miles and recovery time. And, you know, sometimes there's letdowns after the race, right? Because you've you've done this whole thing. You've spent six months working towards it. And then there's almost like a depression feeling after. And mm-hmm. have I controlled it? I think in a way there's times where I've really, you know, my running hasn't sort of been to extremes. And I think there's times where it has, you know, there's times where I've let running sort of be my complete identity. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I've definitely tried to pack in too much. There's times where I've signed up for too many races, you know, totally burned myself out, just working so hard just to finish at times, you know, but I'm also very fortunate that I've got people, sober people that know me that are also ultra runners that say, look, you know, the most important thing is you're a sober man first, you know, and you're a dad and a husband second, you know, and you're a runner third. And Sometimes they, you know, they'll call me, they'll message me, they'll talk to me and say, that's how you have to keep your priorities. Can I, because I can easily put the running at at the top part. You know, I still go to my meetings, you know, I've never picked up a drink since I've stopped, but I I can let my ego very much get in front of me, right? And that's going to take me away from the other two things. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think 50% of the time I can manage it okay. And other times, you know, I can let that be too much my identity. You know, I can spend too much time focusing on it and working on it. And and that's, and that's me being honest about it. Yeah, no, I appreciate your honesty. And, you know, we haven't mentioned that Jen, yeah, you, you started running after your second child who is now six. So six ish years ago. Um, and you now run, you know, a lot of these ultras with Matt from your perspective, Talk to us about how do, how do you as a family keep it in check? <laughs> do you personally ever struggle with a little bit of the FOMO and the, the wanting to add everything on? Or are you the voice of moderation in the family? How, do, how does the balance go within your family? That's a good question. Um, so I think for me, when I got into running, it also escalated pretty quickly. Uh, Matt signed me up for a turkey trot. And from there, it just kind of kept going. And I had done my first half marathon. And somewhere in the the back of my brain, I had thought someday I'd love to do a marathon. And after um, I was getting on the bus, the shuttle bus, after the first half marathon I did, I turned and looked at my friend and I said, if I ever talk about doing a marathon, tell me that I'm an idiot and that I never want to do that. Um, so probably a day later, I'm like, well, you know, maybe. So of course, yes, we signed up for our, our uh, marathon and, and my girlfriend and I, we trained together and um, we uh, finished uh, the marathon in Maine and had a great time. And then I want to say it was probably within a year or two. I can't recall exact dates, but I ran another marathon and then decided, okay, well, I'm going to take it up a notch and I'm going to just go all in. And I ran uh, my first 50K, 50 miler and 100 miler all within like six months of each other. (laughs) So I figured I'm going to just, I had signed up for my first 100 miler and figured I'm just going to train all those distances leading up to it, except for I did not do 100K. Haven't done that yet. But 
yeah, I think um, I'm not always the voice of reason <laughs> because I, <laughs> I think um, it is a weird, it's almost like weirdly normalized in the ultra running world, but yeah, this is just what we do. I will say though, that in terms of, of Matt seeing it as his identity, I don't know that I see it quite as much as, as that. I, I feel like Maybe I'm just too busy with like work and kids and running to squeeze it in. I have to be very regimented about when I get my runs in. It, it has to be super early before everybody's up um, just so that I can be back in time to, to get the kids going and all of that. And then he takes like the, the later in the day uh, running. So, but we both just ran um, a hundred miler that we both DNF'd and this was like, think both of us our first DNF. And I got to say, while I was out there, he had DNF before I had. And he called me to tell me like, hey, things aren't going good. There was a small piece of me that kind of thought this is probably good for him and that he kind of needs mm-hmm. this because he's going to get over it. Mm-hmm. He's going to process it. And he's going to feel like, okay, the world didn't end. Everything's fine. And see that like, you know what, people still think he's, you know, a good runner and that he still can go out there and enjoy it. And I think it just shifts the perspective of why are we doing this? I know I'm not going to go and win a race. I'm, I'm not a fast runner, but I go out there because I like to be out in nature. I love the community. I love meeting people on the trails and, and sharing stories with them. And like, you just kind of hit like this fast forward button of just immediately getting to the the good stuff and knowing more about them than maybe you want to know. But um, I think you just, you don't kind of dance around like the niceties. You just get to the grit. And I think that's the best part about um, the running world. Even just when I go on training runs with um, this, this group of uh, moms that are, are from my my area, we all get together early, early in the morning. And it's like no nonsense. We don't, we just talk about anything and everything. And I think that's the beauty of running is maybe it's because you're not looking at each other and you're all going in the same direction, but you share things that you would never yes. say to anybody else. I've heard it called the relationship accelerator. Yes. yes. Have you ever heard that before? No, but that's, that's so great. true. It's like Definitely. all of a sudden one run with someone and you know their whole life story and maybe it is something about that. It's like driving in the car with your kids, right? They're not looking at you. So you have better conversation. I, But it's it's a thing. For sure. Definitely. Yeah. So I, I yeah. think it's... um. I don't know that I'm always the voice of reason in terms of, hey, let's back off a little bit, but maybe I am a little more than Matt. <laughs> I think he um, he goes all in and goes extreme, and sometimes I have to talk him down a little. Well, Matt, you talked about like when you were doing that half mile around your neighborhood right away, you know, right at first, and you experienced that, you know, clear head and that peacefulness and you know, the things that you were looking for through alcohol, I guess, without the negative side effects. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. One thing I found in running that I'm very thankful for, and I try to explain this to people, and sometimes it makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. You know, the reason I like ultra running so much is that you're going to go to a very dark place, right? And it you're going to go to a point where you want to quit. You have every reason to quit. It hurts. It sucks. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. you go to a dark place, right? And for me, 
being able to get through that dark place and keep going. That's why I keep going back to it because I didn't Mm -hmm. quit. And I almost look forward to that sometimes during races, you know, because once you know, you can get through it, you can keep doing it. And I struggled so much. I lived in those dark places for so long. You know, um, I lived in those fears and doubts for, for years and years and years and never thought I could get through it. You know, on the other side of that, there's a lot of peace. You know, some people might look at it like, oh, you're a masochist. You know, you're, you're looking to go out and feel pain. That's not what it is. It, it, it's, I think it's just constantly proven to myself that, you know, when your mind tells you to stop or when your mind tells you, you know, I go through points where it's like, do I really belong here? Am I good enough to be out here? You know, I still struggle with that, you know. Yeah. Um, I've been on a lot of starting lines, but there's times where I still struggle. Do I belong here? And I have to remind myself that I do that, that first half mile brought me the same sense of peace that I still find going out for a training run today or in races today. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I, I try not to take it for granted how fortunate I am to be able to do this. Cause there's a lot of people that can't, that really wish they could do that. And sometimes my perspective isn't being grateful. You know, and that's been the benefit of of Jen because she's able to remind me a lot of times how grateful I really am that I can do this. Because um, mm-hmm. it can get negative sometimes, and that's why I'm fortunate to have people around me that can remind me of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I guess that's what I was wondering is that you know you used to get it through an 800 meter run, <laughs> right? That like, can I really do this? And now it's like anything we habituate to things we we get fitter, right? So we have to go like up the ante in order to get that same thing. So that's, I was wondering if you think that that's played into like the going longer and longer that you actually just have gotten fitter and now you have to go longer to get to that dark place. Does that make sense? That question or? Yeah, I I think sometimes it's just the ability to, I mean, you know, sometimes just the ability to go out and run in the woods for two or three hours. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's awesome. You know, Mm -hmm. um, whether you're with someone or by yourself, even in, you know, even during the winter, I mean, we don't have winters like you two do, but you know, even during the cold, even during the snow, sometimes, you know, I might complain as I'm putting 50 layers on to go out there, but once you're out there, man, it's awesome. And sometimes I'm the only person out there on those trails, you know, and the snow's up to my snow's up to my knees in certain spots. And, and I still remind myself, like, I can't believe this is what I'm out here doing. There's so many reminders in my life, especially through running that even if, even it's the people I've met through the sport that mm-hmm. I would have never met had I still been drinking. There's still so much peace to be found out there, you know, whether it's work stress or life stress or a run usually solves most problems, you know, oh, even if it's three miles, you know, it can clear yeah. the head, you can work through stuff. And, and it's also, I, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I enjoy listening to podcasts too, or, or books and, yeah. You know, it's a lot of time to learn stuff and learn about other people. Definitely. So, um, 100%. yeah, I never take it for granted. Yeah. It's like, I, I get to do this kind of a thing. Right. Yep. So, so I'm curious, just going back to the identity piece, like you said, you, now you have this identity as a runner. And so when Jen was talking about the, the recent DNF, like, how did you deal with that? Like, did it rock your identity at all? Or did, did it really end up teaching you like, oh yeah, the sun comes up tomorrow and I can get through this. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's like two weeks ago, right? So I think, yeah, yeah, after the first 25 miles, it was, you know, it was 90 degrees and I didn't feel great, but my legs felt fine. Right. And I go another, you know, we leave the aid station. I go another two to three miles and, you know, I go to go pee in the woods and I'm peeing blood. I instantly go like, this isn't going to happen. 
and I will say, as I kind of just said, that people presented, you know, the universe is put in my life. I, I texted my friend Ari, who I've gotten to be friends with. Um, he's in the Netherlands and I know he had dealt with some of those issues before. And I said, I don't even know what time it was there. Right. And I said, Hey, this is what happened. He's like, you got to stop. And I'm like, yeah, but maybe I can. And he's like, you got to stop, dude. You got to put the ego aside. And that really hit me. Right. Like, what am I doing this for? And it's okay. Like, it's not, it's not going to happen today. But I instantly, right? So I instantly, you know, those those alcoholic feelings come back. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel like a loser. I'm not going to feel good enough. People aren't going to like me. They're going to laugh mm-hmm. at me. I'm a failure, right? Those start coming back. And um, I have this quick conversation just through text, uh, through WhatsApp with him because he's in the Netherlands. And he's like, that's the ego talking, man. Just mm-hmm. get to the aid station and drop. That's the right thing to do. You know, it's hard for me. Internally, I'm, you know, nine years later, nine years sober, I always feel like I'm still trying to prove I'm not that same person, right? I'm not that same person that um, that I look back as a loser now, right? Like this alcoholic that had all these issues. I always feel like I'm still trying to prove I'm not that same person. And, and knowing that I wasn't going to finish that and that people were going to know about it, it was a lot. But it's also, as most people say, no one also cares, right? This is me. You know, people want to make sure I'm healthy and I'm okay. But yeah, it was it was a big blow. It was a very big blow to my self-esteem, I think, at the time and as it was sort of happening. But, you know, I'm very fortunate that I had this friend that kind of talked me through it sort of as it was going and yeah. left me some kind words after. And yeah, I, I'm very fortunate for that. Well, and you, I, I don't know whether it was by coincidence or just the timing was right, but I, I messaged you after I saw your post uh, that you had... Um, an early end to your race. And the response I got back almost immediately was, I got to go support Jen. She's still out there. I'm going to shower and I'm going out to support my wife. She's rocking it. And I wanted to come back a little bit to, you know, you mentioned, Jen, how you would run early in the morning and Matt would run after work. And I know you've said that you don't often run together, but you do race together quite frequently. And um, I'd like to come back to your first 100 miler, which was, I believe, the Badger 100. So you did that one together. And I know you supported each other quite a bit during the race. Jen, tell us a bit about that race and maybe some of the sports psychology you had to pull out to get you guys through that race. Sure. In all of our races that, that we've raced together, we never really have the plan of staying together. Um, it just sort of winds up that way. Um, so for the Badger 100, we both kind of thought like, we're just going to go run and see you at the finish line and see how this goes. Then as the race started, we kind of just synced up and said, okay, let's stay together for a while and see how this goes. And there's this tunnel that's part of it. That's like what a quarter mile long. Um, and it turns just a little, so you can't see the other end and it's just pitch black in there. And as we went through the first time, I'm like, yeah, we're staying together. (laughs) I was like totally freaked out by it after going through, it was fine, but, um, it was nice to kind of stick together. I, it's funny because we don't train together. So where this all kind of came from, I don't know. This is just how we've figured out how to, how to race together. Um, but we don't 
talk an awful lot. Um, there's a lot of grunting and like, okay, do you need this? Do you need that? Okay, <laughs> let's do this at the aid station. It's a little like all business, <laughs> um, but it works for us. So um, at the the Badger 100, it was in August, the early August in the Midwest. It's hot and humid and there's a whole section of the trail that's kind of just pretty well exposed and and the time of day it was just like the sun beating down on us and Matt describes it as like he felt like his brain was cooking underneath his head and um, so we were you know trying to think cool thoughts and all of that and there was an aid station that we stopped at and he started throwing up and um, just really struggling and for me I actually think that sometimes it helps my running to help somebody else. So I'm not thinking about like how this hurts for me. It's so I I think when I run with him, it actually helps me because I'm not thinking about how much of a disaster I feel. (laughs) So he's saying how, you know, he's not feeling well. He doesn't know if he can do this. And I just kind of said like, look, we get to do this. We get to be out here. We, we, paid to do this. And I know I see that sign at a lot of the races, like, haha, you paid to do this, but it, it does ring true. Like this is something that we chose to do. We've trained for this. We want to be out here and we get to be here. And, and a lot of people may never see that opportunity or may, may never want to see that opportunity. But for us, that is something that we, we strived to be there and, and to complete that race. And mm-hmm. there was never really a doubt in my mind that like we went there to finish this race and that that's what we were going to do. So when he kind of started talking negatively to himself and saying it out loud, I'm like, uh, uh-uh, uh, this, we need to just stop this right now. So, you know, I, I, I was saying we get to do this. And then I reminded him that, you know, you got sober, that's really hard to do and you can do anything after that. And I think that that must have resonated with him because he he got back up, got some ice and okay. off we went again. I guess I have figured out the things that he needs to hear in the moment. At this last race, we weren't sticking together quite as much. Um, he was having a rougher time and I was, you know, feeling pretty strong until I wasn't anymore. But um, I, I just was having difficulty with that heat and uh, keeping food down. But um in my head, I, I kind of thought, okay, this is the end of my race and I'm going to come back and get it next year. Like it, it wasn't something that I'm going to f- think of for a whole year. I'm just going to get back training and that's the beast that I, I'll get off my back at some point. <laughs> so I would say too, just a, I think the one thing, so we've run 300 milers together completely and she's paced me at a fourth. And um, I think the thing is when we have low points, they're very different. They're never at the same time. Mm. So I think that's been very beneficial. So I think we're able to pick each other up at those points. So they never seem to happen at the same time. So I think especially, you know, over 27, 30 hours, whatever it is. I mean, when the other person's at a high and then the other person's at a low, Mm -hmm. you can sort of carry them along as well. So I think that's been very beneficial to us. You know, we don't ever train together. So we only run together maybe a couple times a year, but I also think that's a good thing too. We don't have to talk. A lot of it's just keeping moving and having somebody there with you. If anybody's run through the night, I think doing that, I've done that alone. That's not as much fun as having somebody there with you, even if it's just hearing the footsteps next to you and having an extra lamp there with you. It's very beneficial to have somebody there. It's very comforting to have somebody there as well. 
and to have it be your wife or your husband. What better way to spend the night, eh, than running? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, I'm not in the ultra community, but one thing that uh, the ultra community is known for is just how much fun they are and what a community it is and, and just the aid stations and the, the big spreads of food. And I know that, you know, there's often alcohol as part of it. So we're very, very curious to ask you, like ultra running attracts a lot of people who are in recovery of alcohol and and particularly beer. And yet it's often this accepted and uh, supported part of the culture. So maybe Matt, you could talk to us about just sort of how you deal with this, how you reconcile this. Like, does it bother you that it's around? Like, does it tempt you or are you kind of not tempted anymore? I'm not like, you know, I have no, I have no interest in taking a drink. It doesn't, it mm. doesn't cross my mind. I think, you know, everybody always talks about those post-race beers and what they taste like and how good mm-hmm. they feel. Right. Especially after you run a hundred miles, I've never had one of those beers right. and I hopefully never will, you know? So, you know, most races are sponsored or in some sort of a way by a, you know, microbrew or, you know, or a beer company. Yeah. And, and that's okay. If I have tickets, I'll give them away to somebody. I think when I first started, you know, there was a little kind of like FOMO that I couldn't have one. But you know, it's funny, it doesn't matter what race I run, I always end up meeting somebody that's also sober. It's funny, the conversations, the short conversations you might have with people out there and people end up telling stories and who they are and, you know, why they're out there. I think a lot of us need a why to be out there running the distances that we do. And, you know, whether it's addiction or, or mental health issues or, or food issues or, you know, the loss of someone, those things come up a lot. So, I think, um, you know, alcohol has never, it's never been something that um, I've really had an issue with at races. You know, I, I, I have a friend that's a race director and he's sober and he has alcohol at his races for the people that can have it. And that's okay. You know, I'm a, I, I started race directing last year uh, with a friend of mine who's also sober. Um, we are never going to have booze at our races, but that's just how we want to do it. I know that people can drink and I know that people can drink responsibly just because I can't. That doesn't mean that other people can as well. You know, my wife can have a beer after a race and she does at times and that doesn't bother me. I would say that if watching other people have a drink really starts to cause me issues, then I've got a lot of other problems. Like I really do need to look at the program that I'm working and what I'm doing. You know, I think the thing with alcohol is, is that unlike other drugs or other substances is I can drive a mile away and get all the booze I want. Right. So if there's ever a time where I want to do that, it's very accessible. So when I start thinking like that, I have to kind of think about how I'm working my program, but yeah, there's definitely a big, um, you know, beer culture and ultra running, but I also think there's, um, quite a large recovery culture and ultra running as well. And that mix and we're all friends too. So. That's really good point. Okay. Um, Jen, what has Matt's being sober meant to you? What has it given you? I think it's opened up um, a different world that maybe I never would have experienced. I think, A, it has helped me to realize that everybody is messed up in some way, shape, or form. If you talk to them long enough, everybody's got a story. So I think being maybe less judgmental about anybody's situation, just because I think that... um, everybody's going through something. Um, So just trying to keep that in mind and and being kinder about that. um, I think it also has helped me to be 
to play less of that comparison game. You know, everybody's trying to keep up with the Joneses next door and the Joneses have their issues too. (laughs) So I think it's Mm -hmm. um, trying to just be understanding of that and and give myself as well as other people a lot more grace um, and and realizing that. It's also opened up this world of running. Um, I don't know that we would have found it uh, in this way. I think that, you know, maybe it would have popped up somewhere in our lives. Maybe I would have been running away from them. I don't know, but um, (laughs) sorry, Matt. (laughs) Um, But it's good to be running with him instead of away from him. (laughs) Yes. So Matt, do you have anything to add to that? Um, What has being sober given you? Well, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you. I don't think I'd be alive, to be honest with you. My goal when I was drinking was to not see 40, and I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened. Um, so there's a there's a lot of reminders of that. You know, it's brought peace in my home. You know, we had our second child in sobriety, which is also a gift. That was not going to happen, obviously, while I was actively drinking. Sobriety has brought some of the most wonderful people in my life, in recovery, in running, and in, in other aspects as well. And, you know, sober and not sober, I'm very fortunate that by getting sober, I was able to get out of my shell and get out of my isolation and be able to meet people, you know, and also be able to help people. You know, when I was drinking, I cared about one person that was myself. And now I actually do care about other people and how they're doing. You know, it's just totally different. It's kind of hard to look back at times and realize, you know, um, how self-centered I was and you know how little I cared about anybody or the world. But if I didn't stop drinking, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have started running, you know, I wouldn't have, um, been able to do this with Jen. I also think that, you know, running has allowed us to show our kids that we can do hard things. You know, you know, we also had the discussion of, you know, this last race didn't happen. It didn't go as we wanted and that's okay as well. I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, as kids grow up and they deal with things and things don't go their way, we can also show them. I'm very fortunate. I, I'm grateful every day to be sober. Yes. Well, you've, you've talked a lot about how you've inspired each other. Uh, so that goes without saying, but this is the Inspired Souls podcast. So we always like to ask, does anybody stand out as someone that's really inspired you on your running journey? So I think this is going to sound maybe like a little self-centered. I don't know, but I, I feel like I inspire myself. It is cool to see like how far I can go and how strong I can be. And, and like Matt said, like, I think it, it trickles down. It shows our girls that we can do hard things, that we can be strong. I coach a girls on the run team and I love seeing them cross the finish line. It's like the most coolest experience. And I feel like they inspire me too. It, I, I feel like it's just cyclical. We all just inspire each other by the different things that we do. But I do think that I, I do inspire myself. I love that. <laughs> I love that you felt comfortable to say that. And I think more humans, but let's say women specifically, need to own that and inspire ourselves. Oh, my goodness. That should be a song title. That's great. Okay, Matt, how about you? Who inspires you? You know, I, you know, I think Jen did a great job saying that. And I think we do have to look for inspiration within, you know, I think for me, when I first started running, the first thing I Google or look up on YouTube, especially sober ultra runners, right. Or sober runners, because I was trying to identify with somebody else that if they could do it, 
I could do it. You know, that was so important to me that there was somebody else there that could do it. And, you know, I think one person who um, very grateful to have met at Gorge this year was Yasin Daboon, um, who lives in the Pacific Northwest, um, who's also sober and who's a who's a fantastic ultra runner. And he's somebody that I really looked up to. And I talked about my friend Ari a little bit. And, you know, over the last year, being friends with him and just his wisdom on on things regarding running, spirituality and everything else really inspired me to believe in myself. What's inspiring to me is also to see people that live their passions, right? And that really go all in on something. And um, over the last year or so, getting to be friends and acquaintances with um, Dylan Bowman, Ryan Thrower, and Harmony Bowman, and seeing them go all in on a project like Reach Out and start to put on races and build this community. And, and that has brought so many people in my life that to me, that's inspiring, right? Is to all three of us are going all in. We're going to risk it all and see what we can do. That's also inspiring. And uh, I think lastly, it's, you know, I, I sit in 12 step meetings and I see the new person walk in the door that's maybe got 24 hours sober, maybe six hours sober and the guts it takes to walk into that meeting for the first time. That's what inspires me. That's why I keep showing up um, mm. to hear those people. And it's got nothing to do with running, but it's the most courageous act you can do is to walk in there and admit you have a problem and look for help. Wow. Yes. Well, you both are very inspirational and you've shared a lot of very personal um, details of your story. And I know our, um, there's somebody out there that needed to hear this story on our podcast. I know you've told it in other venues, but I, I'm really grateful that you've chosen to share with us. What's next for you guys? What's, what's coming up for the rest of your running summer? So my, my next thing that I'm doing is uh, we're I'm going to Duluth, Minnesota to run Grandma's Marathon, but we're going to make it a double. And uh, my friend Eric and I are going to start at like two in the morning and run it backwards and then run the regular marathon forwards, I think at 730 with the rest of the people, which will be interesting. I've never done uh, 52 miles on the road before, so that should be fun. In uh, July, I am running Vermont 100 which I've wanted to run for a long time growing up in Vermont. It's a race that I've wanted to do and I get in off the wait list. So we're going to give that a hell of an attempt and hopefully it's not a hundred degrees that day. And in October I am running ghost train 100, which is sort of our local 100 race just over the border in New Hampshire. And I've done it twice and I can't wait to go back and I'll go back there every year. And lastly, I started race directing last year with a friend, a sober friend, and we put on a 10-mile race called the Womp Romp at Wampatuck State Park in Hingham. And we are also adding a 50K this year. So this will be our second year race directing. And I never realized why race directors do it sometimes. It's definitely not for the money, but it's for um, <laughs> it's for watching those people cross, right? And we're going to have a lot of first-time ultra runners for that 50K. So I'm super excited, super excited to be inspired, super excited to see people realize they can do this hard thing. So what are your races called again? The Womp Romp? Yeah, it's at Wampatuck State Park. So we call it the Womp Romp. And uh, we had a 10 miler last year. We had, uh, I think, 99 people finish. And this year we're going to do a 10 miler and a 50K. We're going to give an ample nine hours for that 50K. Just so the first, you know, for people can do it for their first time and we're excited for them. So we'll definitely link to that in our show notes. If you're looking for something to do this fall, uh, you can check out those two races. Fall in New England. It's beautiful. The leaves are changing. It's awesome. 
Awesome. How about you, Jen? Are you doing all of these races too? Or do you have your own agenda? Yeah. So um, coming up in June, it's not an official race, but um, for my work, I work for the Alzheimer's Association and um, we have a fundraising activity called The Longest Day and it takes place on or around June 21st, um, which is the longest day of sunlight. And people can do any sort of activity, but I've chosen to run from sunup to sundown. And, um, you know, it's just a, a fundraising activity and also builds awareness about Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, so people can uh, learn more about that if they, they go to uh, the Alzheimer's Association website. And then after that, I'm going to crew and pace, possibly, depends on what his needs are. But um, Matt at the Vermont 100. And then our local um, running club called the Trail Animals Running Club or TARC, um, I'm going to do their fall classic, uh, which is a 50 mile distance. Then their uh, ghost train, uh, 100 mile in October. And then um, I'm signed up to do the Womp Romp 50K, but that's the week after the 100 miler. So we'll see Mm. how things go. (laughs) I may have to drop down to the 10 miler or volunteer. We'll see. (laughs) You maybe put on the mic at the finish line or something. Yeah. (laughs) Before we let the two of you go, this has been a very fascinating conversation. Do you have any uh, final messages for someone who may be listening, who may be struggling with addiction right now or in recovery right now. Um, any last words? Maybe we'll start with you, Matt. So I think the most important thing is to never give up on yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I think we're I think we're capable of a lot more than we believe. You do have value, right? And and you need to understand that. I think we I think we forget about that a lot. And there's times where I do. Um, Mm. the most important thing is never give up on yourself. There's always a place to get help. They can reach out to me and I will do everything possible to help them as well if I can. And, Mm. you know, one of the most important things I ever heard in recovery was it's okay to look back, but don't stare. And that, um, was one of the most important things I've ever heard. You know, we spend a lot of time looking back at our past, but you can't do that. You got to keep moving forward. You know, you can take a look at it, but don't stare at it. So. I love that. And what about you, Jen? Is there anything, any message particularly for spouses or loved ones of somebody that may be struggling? Yeah, I think, um, you know, you can stand beside somebody on their journey, but you can't, you can't lead them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really up to them to, to make the changes and they have to be willing to. So um, in our situation, it was kind of like an ultimatum that, that, made Matt say, okay, I do need to make this change. Not everybody's going to do that. Um, and I think being able to separate yourself from what's happening and saying, you know, I have my own worth and, um, understanding that it's not your fault, that this is happening, that it's, you know, you can provide all the help you can, but if you get sucked into it, then there's two people that are, are going down with this addiction. So it is important to, get help for yourself in whatever way that looks like. I know there are organizations out there that people can um, like Al-Anon and things like that. I mm-hmm. have not done that myself. Um, I, I think I have found um, my help in actually some of, of my running friends also have husbands that are in recovery. So we kind mm-hmm. of chat a little bit on the trails and uh, it's, it's kind of our own therapy. So um, 
I think that helps. Great, great advice. And again, thank you so much to both of you for coming on this podcast, sharing your story. Best of luck with with the rest of your summer runs. Um, You have a lot coming up and it'll be exciting to see what happens for you both. Where can our listeners maybe connect with you a little bit more if they would like to? So I think uh, the easiest way, um, you know, if you look me up on Facebook, my name, Matthew Hoadley, H-O-A-D-L-E-Y, and uh, on Instagram, at Seaside Runner. Um, if anybody wants to message me or anything or, or needs any help, um, I'm more than willing to, uh, to help them or chat with them. And I'm on Facebook as well um, and Instagram. My Instagram is Jennifer O. Jenny. I hit the Boston accent hard there. <laughs> <laughs> love it well we will link all of that in the show notes thanks guys good luck this summer thank you so much thanks for having us